you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, you and I are going back to school, and not just the school that you and I might have graduated from years ago, but this time we're going to go back to Harvard University. I know, people, get ready to rock and roll. That's going to be a difficult assignment, but I promise you, if you hang along long enough, a very worthy one. Let me tell you more about it, because our guest today is Mark Schultz. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Good Life, and he's the associate director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It is the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. It's an amazing study. Since 1938, the study has tracked three generations of families to uncover what contributed to their happiness surrounding relationships and money and success, and ultimately, what leads to a truly happy life. The simple but perhaps surprising answer is this. You ready for it? How wealthy they are and how many friends they have on social media. No, my friends. Pay attention. That is not at all what they have found through their research. The simple but surprising answer what leads to a truly successful, happy, meaningful life is their relationships. The stronger our relationships are, the more likely we were to be happy, to be satisfied, to report overall healthier lives and longer lives to boot. Today, Mark joins us to help us understand how relationships in all their forms, friendships, romantic partnerships, families, coworkers, tennis partners, book clubs, Bible study organizations and all the other ones that we join in in our lives can lead to a healthier, happier, more robust, and ultimately more joyful life. My friends, in a world that faces unprecedented levels of unhappiness, despair, and loneliness, Mark's going to empower us and inspire us today through actionable guidance that it's not too late to strengthen the relationships you have and it's never too late to build new ones to make your life just a little bit better. So my friends, grab a friend or a journal and a favorite pen. Grab something to sip on. You'll need it for this one as I bring on my friend and soon to be yours, his name, Mark Schultz. Dr. Mark Schultz, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I'm really delighted to be with you, John. Excited to talk to you. Really, you know, inspired by your own story and the work you're doing. It's terrific. 
Well, dude, if that's true, then it's two people singing one another's praise because I love what you're doing. I love your work. I love your heart for it and the impact that you're having. So I, I know your story. I know what you're up to. But if I happened to stumble into you in a grocery store and met you for the first time and asked you what you did for a living, how would you respond? Yeah, I usually start with I'm a professor. So I've been teaching at a university for 26 years now. And I love that work. And I'm a psychologist. That's the subject I teach. But I also am trained to be a therapist. I've been doing that work for close to 35, 40 years now. Yeah, so that's how I describe myself. And if if they're still going along for the ride and their, their eyes are still opened and not yet glazed over and they say, well, when you're not doing that, what do you like to do at home? How do you respond? There are lots of stuff that I really enjoy. I'm someone that is into gardening. I love racket sports. I've always been active my whole life and I continue to be active. You know, I've raised a family. My kids are older at this point, but uh, family and my connections to others really important to me. And in general, it's part of why I became a psychologist. I'm really interested in people and uh, what makes them tick. So I, I figured out sort of somewhere along the way that being a psychologist isn't a bad thing to do if you're interested in learning about the experiences of others. Well, man, I'm excited today to learn about the experience of others and the experience of you during this conversation. So I'm going to reverse a little bit away from the work you're doing currently all the way up to your childhood. Mm -hmm. I don't know this part about your story. Where did you grow up? What part of the country? I grew up on the East Coast in and around New York, New York. So I lived in the city for a while and I grew up mainly during my childhood in the suburbs of New York. This part of the story is interesting. My, my dad was a refugee from Germany. My mom was quite young when they met and they got married. My mother was 20 years old when she had me, which is just incredible for me to think about now. Their marriage was a tough one. They were married for about two years. I got divorced before I turned two. And both of them remarried. Uh, so I really grew up in two families. Both of them were very caring and present in my life, but two very different families. Part of the challenge that my mom and dad had is that they were um, very different in their backgrounds and also in some of their ways of going about life. So uh, my mom is a kind of real New Yorker in some ways and curses and lets you know what's on her mind. And my dad was very careful about what he would say. Um, not, I don't think I ever heard him curse in his entire life. So I grew up in two very different cultures. And I think that partly fueled my interest in psychology mm. and my interest in, you know, why people are different from each other too, because my families were clearly different from each other. So in life, we learn frequently who we don't want to become from our parents and from our teachers or from our leaders, but we also learn from them who we want to become. So from your mom, this tough New Yorker who may have cursed a couple of times, what, what did you learn from her? What's the best lesson she taught you? Yeah, so this tough woman wasn't really so tough. It was just on the outside. So my mom was a lifelong educator and photographer. She was an artist as she was growing up and uh, applied that by becoming a photographer. So what I learned from my mom was really observing other people. My mom was a photographer of people. That's what she loved to do. And she, uh, in some ways, used her camera as a way to get to know other people. She was shy. And this was a tool for her to get to know other people. And her portraits were really quite revealing of, you know, different aspects of people. So I always admired that about my mother. She was also interested in trying to capture people as they live life. And that turns out to be what I'm doing in my later life. So uh, that was really important in terms of inspiration. So that's your mom. And then you have a, a, a father originally from Germany. What, what was yeah, the best so, about your father? What did he teach? 
Well, my father taught me a lot of lessons, as my mother did, but my father really, uh, one big lesson was very difficult experiences growing up. He grew up in a Jewish family. He was born in 1929 in Hamburg, Germany. Early part of his life was quite good, and then things became challenging quickly when he was four or five years old. He left Germany. He was incredibly lucky. He left in late 1939, so he was one of the last folks to get out. He and his sister were able to get out of Germany. And my dad was someone who was able to remember both the good and the challenging parts of his childhood, which were quite remarkable for me. So early life, he remembers some of the joys. He remembers doing gymnastics and playing the piano. And then he could also talk about some of the challenges, including terrifying times that he had when uh, right before he left. So my dad was someone who could lean into challenges, which I admired. And my dad also coped in a certain way by learning and, and wanting to kind of uh, read more and learn more about what was happening in Germany and why those kinds of things were happening in other places. Uh, so those are lessons that remained with me. And I still, I use my learnings as ways to understand the world as well. Mark, did he talk much about what he witnessed as a young person and the things he lost and, and uh, endured? He did. He did. He was able to talk about them. And, and what I didn't realize when I was younger is how difficult it was for him to talk about it. As he got older, he was more able to share some of the, you know, the, the challenges when he would give talks. So he would write out his talks because it was so hard for him to talk about it. He really needed to have that structure when he would give talks about his experience. But he felt compelled to tell people, particularly young people, about his experiences. So he would do talks about what it was like growing up and, and the challenges that he experienced and the importance of sort of learning from our history and our mistakes. So really admired him for that. Uh, it was only later in life that I realized how challenging it was for him to do that. It was a kind of mission for him to share mm -hmm. those stories and I think really valuable. I feel lucky that that I'm young enough or, or grew up at a time where I could record some of those. So I have video and audio tapes of him telling his story, including interviews that I did when my children were quite young. And we play those on occasion so that my older kids now, my, my children are adults, um, they can hear those stories as well. So we preserve them. So I'm a St. Louis guy, born and raised, and I spent three years of my life in a, a little community called University City. It's mm -hmm. on Washington University's campus, just north. And there's a street that my family, that my roommates and I lived on called Amherst. I learned later on that apparently Amherst was named after a university you may have attended. Why did you choose Amherst? What were you going to study? What were you looking to do later on in life? Yeah, it's hard to, to think back and imagine. When I was 18, I knew very little. I knew I was interested in learning. I had gotten excited about learning in my high school. I went to a public high school. I have to say, I didn't feel particularly challenged when I was in high school. Uh, I was a good student. Um, I enjoyed some of the science classes that I did. And I went to, or I went looking for a college where I was gonna be able to do science. I was interested in neuroscience and what went on in the brain. This was an emerging field. Um, Amherst was a place where I could do that, but also study more broadly. And I had, interests that I didn't sort of fully recognize as being in the social sciences. So I loved social studies when I was also in high school. So it was social mm -hmm. studies and science. I was a weird kid that liked both of them. And Amherst was a place that valued the liberal arts and I could do both of them. And in fact, I did. I poured into science when I first went there, took a lot of courses across the science curriculum, thought about being a doctor and a researcher in neuroscience, uh, pursued summer jobs doing that kind of research. 
but became quite fascinated in social science. Um, it wasn't psychology back then, it was sociology and political science. I was really interested in big questions about human nature and also about how we could help people. So I was interested in reading people who were talking about the conditions under which people thrived, which turned out mm. to be an interest I got to pursue later on in psychology. But when I was in college, it was all about big questions and uh, kind of societal level questions in sociology and in um, political science, along with that science. I didn't let the science go, uh, but I became really excited about the social sciences. So you graduate there. Ultimately, you get your PhD, I think, out of California, University of California. I did, although that path from college to graduate school, that was a challenging one for me. I couldn't figure out which direction. Uh, again, working and getting experience was useful for me. I did some community organizing. I did some political work. Um, I did writing. I did professional writing for a public policy group. And what I realized is that I really needed to do something that involved engagement with people, that the community yeah. organizing I liked for that reason, the writing I liked less because I was in an office by myself most of the day, and yeah. I thrived when I was with other people. So eventually my head figured it out that psychology was a place where you could write and you could engage with people. Uh, my first foray into psychology and neuroscience had been with goldfish and they didn't talk back very much when I talked to them. So I, I realized I had to shift uh, fields. So I went into clinical psychology is what I did. What about Bryn Mawr College? And then, uh, so after college, after grad school, when I was trying to figure out what to do, at some point, it dawned on me that maybe teaching wouldn't be a bad idea. People had told me, you know, you should think about teaching. I think you would be good at it. And to be honest, I had trouble imagining myself as a professor because those were people that I admired so much and knew so many things that I didn't know. Um, but I had some experience in grad school teaching. I liked it. Um, so I applied for jobs at a liberal arts college and I uh, ended up at Bryn Mawr. Bryn Mawr is an all women's college. I've been here for 26 years now and have loved it, really loved it. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. The, you, uh, through your research with, with Harvard, learned about a guy named Leo. I believe Leo was a Harvard grad who could have done anything in the world with that degree. Yeah. And he went into teaching. Yeah. As I was reading about Leo, it made me think also about you. You could have done anything you wanted. You could have climbed to the very tippity top of the ladder and you chose teaching. You chose to become a professor like Leo. As you watched his life unfold in the research, uh, did you connect it all with his story and connect it back to yours? I, I haven't made the connection that you're making. That's really interesting and in some ways obvious, you know, like, why didn't I think about it? But Leo went to college. He went to Harvard University as part of our study. That's how I know Leo. He went to college starting in the 1930s and World War II broke out. So he was of a similar age as my dad, a little bit older. And he served in the military, in the Navy, in the Pacific Theater, continued to dream about being a writer. In fact, he took copious notes when he was serving in the military with the hopes that he would come back and write a book. But beyond the war, other circumstances intervened. His dad died before the end of the war, and then his mom got sick. His mom got Parkinson's disease. And Leo went back home to Vermont to be with his mom and to help his family. So I had more choices in some way. I was freer to choose. Um, mm. Leo, I see his life was somewhat constrained by the, the family challenges that he had. I was a kid who did have a lot of choices. And in some ways, it was paralyzing having that many choices. I struggled with this sort of policy route versus psychology. 
Um, even after my first year, I have to say, after my first year of graduate school, still wasn't quite sure I was pursuing the right path, but it turned out to be absolutely the right path for me. Mm. Absolutely. So now that we're learning about Leo, we might as well learn about the study that you referenced. Unpack for us how you became familiar with Leo and why it matters to our listeners and viewers. So Leo is part of a study that is a remarkable study. It's quite unique in the history of science. Uh, it's a study that began in the late 1930s. So this is in the throes of the depression. It began in Boston. It was two separate studies at the start. 724 individuals began to be followed. Uh, in the two studies, they had a common interest in trying to think about what leads to human thriving. How do we flourish in life? One of the studies uh, was focused on inner city kids. This was about two thirds of the 724 participants. These were adolescents, 13 and 14 year olds growing up in Boston's poorest neighborhoods, uh, facing real challenges in life, living in tenements, overcrowded uh, conditions, without plumbing. Most of them had come from immigrant families. Uh, so living a life that was really on the margins, uh, facing real economic challenges uh, moving forward. The remaining one-third lived not far away across Boston in Cambridge. They were Harvard University students as sophomores. They were chosen for a study, again, of human thriving, trying to understand what was going to lead folks to flourish. And they were considered by the researchers at that time to be normal people, and they were going to study how they developed. Of course, these days we know that it's not normal to study Harvard University students. It's not normal <laughs> to study guys. There are only guys at Harvard at that time, although Radcliffe was around, so they could have studied women but they didn't. So the study began with these two cohorts, very different samples, different walks of life, and they were followed really closely throughout their entire life. It didn't start as a study that would go on for 85 years, but it did through luck and persistence. Interviews, medical checkups regularly, questionnaires every two years. These 724 individuals were followed intensely closely across their entire lives with a real interest in trying to understand sort of what made them tick, what went on inside their head, and to try and identify factors that were connected with them thriving under, again, very different circumstances, very challenging economic circumstances, and kind of top of the pile in terms of opportunities from Harvard in the 1930s and early 40s. Why do you think it continued on as long as it did? One, one thing that surprises me is that it made it through the war, let alone the next war yeah. and the next one and the next, everything else that changed in the world, yeah. decade after decade after decade, it just kept going on. And now even generation after generation, it just yeah. keeps going on. Why has it been so successfully led for all these years? I think some of it is certainly luck. So we have to be honest that some of it is luck. And there were hard times for the study where the study ran out of money and leadership, new leadership needed to be developed. But there were also there four generations of leadership. So Bob Waldinger, who's the co-author of the book that I wrote, The Good Life, is the current director. I'm the associate director of the fourth generation of leaders. And the previous three generations were incredibly creative and persistent. Very early on, because the study was so interested in trying to understand these kids' experiences that grew up, the study became a kind of proxy family for the participants. They learned to depend on these check-ins as a way to see how they were doing for themselves in their lives. They would update the study on important events. Over time, we included the, the wives of the original participants who were all male. And now, as you said, we're studying more than 1,300 of their children. So the study became an important part of their lives. The best example I can give you is that we actually had 
have in a deep freezer in Boston. We have 25 of the brains of the original participants. In their last act, their families decided they wanted to give one more thing to the study. So we have frozen brains that we will use at some point for research questions that can um, take advantage of that information. And we get calls all the time. Most of the original participants are dead, um, but are you interested in their journals? Are you interested in their, you know, sort of uh, other memorabilia from their life that we became an important part of their life. And I think that's why the study continued for so long. So that's the what, and I'm curious, the uh, effect, the impact of it. Broadly speaking, what was the most important discovery for you as you went through the reams and decades of research? So hundreds and hundreds of papers from the study, and there's certainly important findings about you know, taking care of our body, smoking's not good for us, excessive drinking's not good for us, we should go to the doctor, we should exercise. Those are findings that have come from our study and, and other studies as well. But when we look back and tried to see, is there a signal among these hundreds of papers, we started to find and, and recognize that it's relationships that were driving happiness and also our physical health. And the, the latter part, the physical health was particularly surprising to us 20, 25 years ago. That was a kind of radical idea that our relationships could get into our bodies, under our skin and affect our physical health in important ways. So we started to look to other studies and it turned out other studies were finding something similar. It wasn't something weird about growing up in Boston at this particular time. This was the beginning of a kind of new revolution, I think in science connecting the experiences that we have in connection with others to our bodies, to our physical health. So that was the big surprise. And, and we decided it was important to take this research, not just keep it buried in academic journals where these hundreds of articles lived and no one read them beyond fellow academics who were teaching these kinds of topics, to, to figure out a way to bring them to folks that could use them in the real world. So we tried to write a book that was engaging, that would tell stories like the story of Leo and other people who are participants so that we could deliver the science in a way that was accessible and interesting so people would, would be able to use that information. A mission accomplished. It's very readable and very practical. So uh, let, let's spend some more time unpacking it. What do, what do you think we get wrong? As we look at our life, I have the honor of, of delivering a few commencement speeches this year. As we get ready to turn the little uh, gown from one side to the other, what do we get wrong as we look forward to life that we think will make us successful, but your research says not so quick? Well, I think we need to think about what we mean by success, right? So we're really interested in what we think about as happiness and happiness has two parts. It's that part that we all know about, which is joy and, you know, the pleasure of just feeling happy. That's a momentary experience. We can't be that all the time, um, but that's part of happiness. And the other part is a kind of bigger picture sense that life is meaningful, that it has a purpose, that when we step back, we have a sense that life is satisfying. So I think there are a bunch of things that we get wrong, and it's not just young people, but all of us get wrong. How important success is that our study suggests very clearly that people who grow up in very humble circumstances that don't have success as it might be conventionally defined uh, can live very happy and satisfying lives, meaningful lives that contribute to others. Um, we overestimate how important money is, that certainly a certain amount of money is important to satisfy our basic needs, food, shelter, safety, healthcare, those things are very important. After that, it's not clear that money adds very much to our happiness or our sense of satisfaction, and it may in fact create some challenges uh, when people have more money than they know what to do with. 
Um, so I think those are some of the messages that we pay attention to the wrong thing. And for young people, you're going to talk to young people around these graduations. So important that, you know, they, they get caught up in this idea that I will be happy when I achieve. I mm. will be happy 10 years, you know, in the future when I can stop working as much. And what we know, looking at the whole arc of lives, following people across this amount of time, and just reflecting on my own life as well as life goes very quickly. So folks that are putting off things for the future often don't get to those things. Happiness is within our reach. We need to figure out ways to get to that place at every stage of our life, including young adulthood. As challenging it is, as uncertain as young adulthood is, not knowing what your path is like, um, it's important to build on those connections that are vital for our human flourishing, for our happiness. You would think over generation over generation of us flourishing and hopefully getting a little bit better each generation, that that lesson of the things that matter and the things that don't would eventually sink in. And yet it, it doesn't seem like it's sinking in at all. And in fact, it may be even going in the reverse direction. Why do you think we do learn so much from previous generations, but around the things that actually bring meaning and true joy in our lives, we have to experience it before we actually learn it? Why is that? It's such an important question, and I think probably there are lots of reasons, but I, I'm going to name a few of the big ones. I think one one big one is the access we have to information these days, particularly around social media. We all know this, but it's important to remind ourselves that in the old days, you know, you had to go outside your house and look down the street to see whether your neighbor had a car that was better than the car you have. Today, you don't have to leave your house. You can pick up your phone. You can look at these beautifully curated pictures of life that people give on social media in which they're having the best of times. They're always at the greatest parties. They're always having the most fun and they have the best stuff, stuff that you don't have. So I think this kind of natural social comparison that we're all prone to do, it's become a big deal now in terms of how invasive it is in our lives. And many people have the sense that they're lacking compared to others. There's also a breakdown in our social connections. It's very clear. So about two weeks ago, our Surgeon General, Vivek Murphy, made a public health advisory, which is a rare event about major public health challenges. And this was about deterioration in social connections or the crisis and loneliness people will talk about sometimes. He provided data. It's quite amazing data. If you go to the Surgeon General site, you can see it about the breakdown in social connections across time. We're frequently apart from where we grew up. So we've lost connection with our schoolmates from childhood, from our families. We've moved to other parts of the country. Communities have broken down in ways that community events that actually happen in real time in real places are less likely to happen. So the old carnivals and parades are less a part of people's lives than they were before. Um, and I think that combined with some of the, the downsides to the technologies around social media and communication have really led us to have a crisis in social connection. Certainly the pandemic has fueled it as well, but these were trends that were happening before the pandemic. So these lessons, which it's not just the previous generation of taught us, but there's right. ancient wisdom that talks about the importance of connection. Um, somehow we're setting up conditions in our lives that don't promote those kinds of connections. I'm going I'm to let you hang out with the ancients just for a moment longer, because mm -hmm. I think many of us might be listening, maybe even cynically. I know we have a few cynical listeners thinking this is just new age nonsense. Yeah. It's just kind of the, the new flavor of the month. 
Uh, talk about some of the former philosophers, some of the great thought leaders from way e e eons ago and what they came to realize as truth. So, you know, if we look carefully, we can certainly see it in ancient Greek philosophy, which is really the beginnings of modern philosophy it developed about the same time as some of the important uh, Asian philosophy work as well in China, for example. And there was a lot of emphasis on, on our communities and how we built them and the importance of connections and what the Greeks would talk about as kind of virtuous, rational, authentic connections with other people. So we see that in secular philosophy. You can see it in religious trends, uh, both Judeo-Christian traditions and also Eastern traditions about the importance of connection, the benefits of generosity. Um, so it's been there for a long time. I do want to say I'm a scientist at Heart. Um, and I do want to say that not all ancient wisdom has been borne out right by science, but this is ancient wisdom where we now accumulated so much research that suggests that the ancients were right here, that a good investment in all of our lives are our connections with others. There are other ideas that, of course, haven't you know, uh, stood the test of time. We no longer bloodlet people when we treat them for medical <laughs> illness, right? That one didn't didn't turn out to be so smart. Um, but there's there's so much research now about the value of connections. A lot of it is around this new area of unloneliness. So estimates in the United States are that 50% of adults experience lon loneliness in a week, 50%. That's extraordinary, one and two. Young people, older people among the most vulnerable to this. The problem is that loneliness is associated with physical health problems and with premature death. On the same level, it's on par with things like smoking, obesity, um, lack of exercise. So this is a this is why our Surgeon General has has offered this public health advisory. So we're not taking the advice of our elders. Uh, we're not taking it to heart somehow. Help us take it to heart. So we uh, have grandpa's wisdom saying, slow down, celebrate life. We're not really doing. Then we get this research. We get the Surgeon General's warning. You have all this stuff we, we know cognitively, but doing is the difficult thing. So give us some practical ways that yeah. not we collectively, but I as an individual listener yeah. can shift away from loneliness and yeah. step more deeply into relationship. I think the first step is recognizing when we're talking about an epidemic where close to 50% of folks have this problem, that you're not alone if you're feeling lonely. And I should say what it means to be lonely. It's not just physical isolation. It's a sense that people don't know you, don't really care about you, don't have your back. The, the question we asked in our study was, in the middle of the night, if you're scared or there's something wrong, is there someone you can call? Some people could give us a list of 10 people and some people said, no, I'm all alone. So the modern version of this is a sense that you're alone. People don't really care about your existence. Again, college students in close proximity to other, they're not physically isolated, are experiencing incredibly high levels of loneliness. They don't think other people really care about them. So I think the first step is recognizing that it may not be a problem that's unique to me. I may not be flawed in that way, that we need to be more proactive. So in our book, The Good Life, we talk a lot about this idea of social fitness. And just like physical fitness, we need to fine tune our social connections. We need to exercise our social muscles. And just like any exercise program, it probably pays to start by stepping back, thinking about the important relationships in your life. Who do you see most frequently? For a lot of people, that's going to be folks they see at 
work, folks in their immediate family? Um, who do I see less frequently that are also important to me? So we can have a kind of dimension of frequency of contact. And then we can put in a second dimension, almost like a two-dimensional space, we can put in the dimension of how energizing that relationship is, the interactions that I have with that person, or how depleting they are. So there may be some people in our life, which is wonderful, that we see frequently and are energizing to us. We feel good when we spend time with them. We leave feeling a kind of jolt of energy and a sense of connection with other people. Those are relationships we want to maximize. And I can talk about how to do that in terms of prioritizing our time in a second. And then there may be other people that are important to us uh, that we're not seeing as much, uh, that are energizing, but we're not having frequent interactions with. So we need to figure out how to fix that. And a good step is to say, you know, John, you're important to me. I'd like to spend more time together. Could we uh, maybe spend a regular time? How about coffee on Thursdays at four with that work or a walk after work that we could do together? So committing time, we're all very busy. We tend to get distracted by all the events of our life, by our phones. Committing time is the first step, letting that person know that they're important to you. And then being present when you're with people. We forget how powerful it is to really be present without distractions. So you and I are having a conversation. We're looking at that Zoom screen. We're listening to each other. We're giving those social cues of nodding. Really important that when we're with people, we can devote our attention. That's our most precious resource. It's being grabbed by phones and social media and the internet and television and all sorts of things and work and busyness. So when we're with people, if we can be present and curious about their experience, that's a really important part of making the kinds of connections that have those benefits. So that's, that's on the positive side. And then I think we also need to think about our challenging connections as well. So are there people in your life that are important enough um, to you, but your interactions have been filled with tension, that they're depleting in some ways, they take away energy. Are you willing to let them know that they're important to see if they're willing to work also on the relationship? So this is about being vulnerable, as it always yeah. is in relationships, right? Um, you know, I miss that time before we had this incident in which I know I disappointed you. I miss that time when we would be together and we would just have fun. I don't know if we can get back to that place, but I'd really like to try. Um, could we, again, could we commit a time to be together and see if we can get back to that place? But it's really about being intentional as opposed to being on automatic pilot, because what we find is the years go by, the hours go by, and our relationships wither. In our study, if we ask people at the end of life what they most regret, the most frequent answer won't be a surprise. It's relationships that withered or that they didn't invest enough energy and kindness in. They wish they could take that back. So we want to be more proactive and not just go through life on automatic pilot, paying attention to that feed, spending the 11 hours on average that Americans spend on screens today. We want to devote our time to the things that are most important to us. And I'm hoping relationships are going to be on that priority list. Mm. You said so much that I'm not even sure where to take the next step with you. I think the most important thing, at least in my selfish opinion, because I want to do better in this, is the relationships that matter most mm -hmm. and how to make sure those are most vibrant, that you say yes loudly to those and no to the ones that maybe matter a little bit less. So the stat around 50% of us being isolated and lonely, 
blows me away because like you mentioned, many of them are living in a dorm room with one or three roommates reporting then that they're isolated and lonely. Many of them are sleeping next to a human being called honey or husband or wife or partner. And then you show up and they report being completely lonely or isolated. So physical proximity is not enough. Help me understand how to make sure those relationships that matter most to us are vibrantly alive. Yeah. So I think we need to work on it, that we have this very romantic idea that particularly when we think about romantic, intimate relationships, that they come easily and naturally, and we don't have to work at them. And I think all the research that I've ever seen on married couples, and we've been able to look at marriages across a lifespan, right, to follow them very closely, all the couples work that I've done and all the couples therapists that I talk to, um, relationships are challenging. And it's not surprising that they're challenging. They're two people with their own minds, their own priorities. When a relationship is sustained across time, people also change. So I grow new interests. I change my ideas about how certain things may work. So it's very hard to grow perfectly in sync. So differences are inevitable in relationships. The key is not worrying about the differences. It's it's worrying about how to talk about the differences and how to resolve differences that are important to resolve for decisions, for example, about rearing kids or even deciding to have kids or the kinds of activities that you want to engage with. So it's learning how to navigate those differences as opposed to hoping that you'll always have the same opinion about things or the same priorities. It's just not possible. It's also really interesting. And this is something I learned much later in life. I didn't come into adulthood equipped with this idea. It, It should be interesting to us to know why a person might have a different set of values or a different set of ideas about how to navigate a certain situation. That that should be interesting. So my wife grew up in a different home than I did. You asked me about my childhood. I described it. It's nothing like my wife's childhood. There there are very few commonalities there. It's not surprising she may have a different idea about how families should operate or about how we should spend our leisure time. And instead of worrying about those differences, I, I now know I can lean into them and I can say, you know, Joan, so interesting to me that that you want to fill up the day on Saturday with an activity after activity. And I just want to take a few hours just to chill, right? What Where does that come from? And I'm really interested in that question. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm curious about why it is that my wife wants to do so much. And I learn from her response, right? I treat her with respect and interest. And we grow by learning about other people's difference, not just intimate relationships, but you know, I teach at a university. Students yes. come from all over the world. They've had many different experiences than I am. They're much younger than I am now. They teach me things every day because I'm open to learning about their experience. I'm interested in what they're what's happening to them. At my grandfather's 50th anniversary to my grandmother. So he's part of that greatest generation. He would have been part of your Harvard study yeah. had he gone there instead of Washington University. I remember he gave us a toast and he said, uh, early in our marriage, people frequently asked how we had a successful marriage for all these years. And he said, it's been relatively easy. I let Caddy, his wife, make all the little decisions, any of the insignificant things she was in charge of, while I, grandpa, made all the important decisions. And he said, so far, it's been perfect because we haven't had a single important decision to make. So <laughs> he, he had not only a way to kind of laugh at himself, but a way I love to it. Yeah. his partner, my beautiful grandmother, to be equally yoked. And they were yep. an ex- 
an awesome example to us. And that story, I just love that story. And what I love about it is that we have the ability to decide what's a small and a big decision, right? So part of what I hear in that message from your grandfather is, if you cannot sweat things that really aren't a big deal, um, you you it's much easier to let the person that you respect and trust make those decisions. So we all have that ability to construct our experiences and to figure out what's most important to us. And we have more flexibility than we think, at least at, at first glance, right? If we can step yeah. back and, and think about these things. So I love that story about, you know, there's so many important lessons in it from your grandfather, so. Well, one of the studies, one of the, the individuals you were studying, JFK, I mean, the, you, you're tracking some significant level leaders and you're tracking two thirds of them, kids from the South side of Boston. Yeah. And yet at the end of their lives, when you ask them ultimately what fed them, what made them most successful, very few of them reported out becoming the bank president. That was it. Uh, climbing a ladder to the very tippity top. That was it. W would you share with our listeners ultimately what most of them reported they found the greatest meaning in? I will. Um, but I also want to emphasize that these findings are not just based on their idea because we do construct our lives. So when we go back and we think about what's most important to us, even if we remember things. So I have siblings, I got three of them. And, you know, it's very rare that we agree on what happened at a particular moment in time. We each have our own view of what happened as we were growing up in our families. So yes, at the end of their life, they talked about the importance of relationships. Many of the men in particular talked about wishing they had worked less, that they had worried less about success in the work domain. Some of the women said almost the opposite. They were they wished in some ways that they were more selfish and had pursued some of the things that were important to them, particularly at work, more vigorously and didn't worry as much about what other people thought. So there was a, this is a generation of women in particular that didn't have the same opportunities as men. So those were the kinds of things that they talked about. But what's critical is these, these two thirds of that sample with incredibly humble beginnings, some of those people as adults thrived in ways that were just extraordinary. And the commonality in their life is they had close connections with people as they were growing up. They might have had challenges in their family. So it could have been an uncle or an important teacher at school, but they had close connections with adults as they were growing up, at least one that helped them through some of the challenges that they experienced in life. And in turn, they entered adulthood in a way that they were able to build on those relationships. So relationships seem to be the driver across these two very different socioeconomic strata. And it was the commonality that led to people in enjoying the good life to, to having a sense of happiness and fulfillment in their life. So when I travel with my kids, in particular, when they were little, really little, like six, five, four, they'll talk to anybody in an airport. Mm -hmm. And it used to drive me crazy. They, they'll start talking <laughs> randomly to the guy seated next to us. I'm like, do you not know airplane etiquette, Jack? You do not talk to that person. <laughs> She's a stranger. Leave her alone. They do this on the playground, they do it in the recess line, and they do it with people of different backgrounds and political affiliation and racial, like everything that seemingly should be a fence between us, kids knock down. One of the cool things in your book, and I forget exactly when it popped, is you talked about the train study. Mm -hmm. And it seems so minor, and it seems like the kind of thing that wouldn't have any real positive effect, except surprisingly, at least to me, it did. Yeah. Would you tell our listeners a bit about that? And then we're going to begin moving toward the finish line together. I love the study. Um, it's one of these great studies and it has an important lesson. This is a study I've now talked about all around the world. And 
there's a common reaction. Well, it's not true for us, right? I was going to say that's a Midwest <laughs> thing you're describing with your kids. Um, so I'm, I want to emphasize the universality of it before I tell the story. So this took place in Chicago. It's Nicholas Eppel, who's at the University of Chicago. People commute to work in Chicago on the elevated train and on buses. So they caught people before they were going into work. And they said, first, how are you feeling? Yeah, and people reported how happy they were, or depressed or sad or uh, what their feelings were. And then they said, what do you usually do when you do your commute? And people said, basically, they zone out, they listen to podcasts, they listen to music, they sleep. Do you talk to people on the train? Oh, no, I would never do that. You, you just don't do that because people want their privacy. They'll reject you. They'll think you're not interesting. You'll get stuck. Mind you, the commutes in Chicago aren't that long. You'll get stuck for hours talking to people and you won't, you know, you won't, you, you won't, you won't like that. Psychologists do cruel things. They assigned half of the people, you're going to talk to a stranger. Half of the people do what you usually do. They caught them as they got off the L on the other side of their commute. How are you feeling was the first question. Lo and behold, the people who talked to strangers were the happiest. They reported an improvement in their mood. People who did the usual thing reported their mood didn't really change or got worse. So there's an important lesson here. There are a few lessons. One is the value of talking to people that we don't know well. And I'm going to extend this to include folks that serve your coffee at your favorite coffee place, your barista, your person who delivers your mail, a neighbor that you nod to, but maybe haven't talked to, that we get an incredible jolt of energy when we make a connection with someone who's been faceless or masked before. And that's a connection that reminds us that we're human. It's, it's a feeling of energy that we often carry with us. So as I tell the story about the study, people share their stories. They tell me, you know, I finally learned the name of my barista. I learned that they really like the, you know, the, the, the Blue Jays and, you know, in Toronto. That's that meeting, that, that connection with my barista was so important. I shared it with my partner that night and I couldn't stop talking about it. the next day. I talked about it with my partner. So people have this kind of buoyed sense of connection. It's a kind of energy when they break the ice, do what your children do and talk to folks who are previously unknown to us. We all want to be seen and heard. And we, we have a kind of experience, I think, of pleasure and connection when we do that. Um, so there's a lesson there. The lesson is to do it, to be brave. Don't follow the progressive insurance advice about not talking to people in the elevators, talk to people in the elevators and the airports. Um, but also that we all, we get in our heads too much, right? The reason we don't talk to strangers is because we think they're going to not find us interesting, that they're going to reject us. This is true of introverts and extroverts, no matter how confident you are. We have this overemphasis on the possibility that we might get rejected and the stakes in getting rejected as well. Most people describe quite engaged conversations they had. Uh, they weren't rejected. And if they were rejected, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Um, we're very focused. It's a bias we have. We worry about danger. We're social creatures. So we had to figure out whether we were with friend or foe. So we might overemphasize the dangers of talking to other people in our life, not just on trains, at work, in our neighborhood. I love the example in the airport with your kids. Terrific. It is terrific. And I learn every day from them. And I hope they don't forget the lessons they taught me because they sure uh, they sure did a phenomenal job. Mark, you've been doing this work for a long time now. How has it changed you? 
I'd say the two big effects on me is one studying people's lives. So we have folders, you know, file folders, drawers, drawers full of the life story of 724 people from when they were adolescents until the very end of their life, correspondence, pictures, responses to questionnaires, letters to us about important events in their life. And it's taught me the importance of prioritizing what's important to us, that life is short. We really need to think about what we want to do in the world, what we want to give back to the world, and we want to pursue that with vigor. So that, that's one thing. And then I think particularly writing the book and synthesizing the research from our study and from hundreds and hundreds of other studies that support the same findings, but importantly, from different samples, from different countries, from different time periods, relationships are really important and we need to lean into them. So I'm talking to people and strangers. I'm talking to people on the trains. It wasn't something I used to do. Um, my kids make fun of me. My adult children make fun of me, but they've started doing it too is the great part. Congratulations. You are living a good life. When people read your book and I encourage them to, but tell them before they do what you hope they receive from it. Yeah, so I hope we've written a book that's engaging. First of all, these stories are incredible. You know, I said I I, I just love learning about other people. So uh, both Bob and I, my co-author, you know, took that energy to this task, trying to capture the life of the, the folks that we've studied over time. So we share those stories. Some of them are remarkable. They're heroic. They're stories of redemption or inspiration. And some of them are mundane and, and you know, very relatable about the kinds of challenges that we all face in life. So I'm hoping that they recognize parts of themselves and the stories and the research that we present as well, give people a chance to reflect on what they're doing in life, to think about what's most important, and to plot a path forward to, to work on the parts of their life that they want to make better. That's what we hope. Yeah, and very clearly, chapter after chapter, you keep reminding us, and it's not too late. And it's not too late. And it's not too late. And you don't have the wrong genes. And you did not grow up in the wrong neighborhood. All these things affect your life, but it's still not too late to redeem it and make it better. Well, I think, you know, you're a, a, a obvious kind of vivid example of the story, right? We can face challenges in our life that we can grow from and learn from, and it can provide meaning that allows us to contribute to the lives of others. So no life is without challenge. It's very clear when you study folks across time. Um, the question is what we make of those challenges and our ability with the help of others uh, to, to learn from those experiences and meet those challenges. Uh, so it's definitely not too late. There are some folks in the study that, you know, well into their 60s live lives that were really quite filled with misery and challenge and began to do things like make new friends and new activities that allowed them to flourish in their seventh and eighth decade of their life, which is just incredible and inspirational. Yeah. Well, Mark Schultz, you've uh, just about made it to the finish line. Before we do, though, we have seven questions that tether every one of our guests together. So my friend, you, uh, I see the books behind you, and I would imagine that is a small sample of the amount of books that you have behind you and in your rearview mirror. But out of all those books, what's been the most influential you've, you've ever read? Picking books, favorite books is like picking favorite children, but there are more of those books. I, I'm going to go with a very idiosyncratic choice. So when I was in graduate school, I read a book called Emotion and Adaptation, which was written by Richard Lazarus. Richard Lazarus is one of the, he's been named one of the 100 most influential psychologists, and he was an expert on stress and emotion. So this was a book that was written in the early 90s, and it synthesized a literature that had been separate before looking at stress and emotion. 
What What's one positive characteristic or one trait you possessed as a little boy growing up near New York that you wish you modeled as brilliantly today? <laughs> you know, when I look at children, this is how I feel about myself. It's that kind of unbridled joy. It's that ability to just laugh and be joyous. That is just an incredible thing that we lose a little bit. I'm a pretty good laugher. I have a loud laugh, so I have some of it. But boy, that giggling and joy I miss from childhood. Mm. Yeah. If your home caught fire and all living things, animals, spouse, children are out, everybody's out, and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you come running back outside with? I think I would go with family photos that, you know, there's an album that I would grab that I'd want to have access to that uh, I have memories in my head, but they're reinforced by those photos that are really important to me too. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? I go with my dad. So my dad died about 15 years ago. And I think it could even be around writing the book and some of the success the book has enjoyed. He'd be tickled about the book. I'd just like to talk to him about some of the things that I wrote about. And I'd like to talk to him about the world that we live in now. I'm curious about what his views are. So I'd probably pick him, I think. What was your dad's name? Bob was his name. In Germany, it was Norbert, but he he changed it to Robert when he came here. When he and we'll pause here just for a moment. Did he come with his entire family, or just the kids escaped? He didn't. Uh, so it was his sister, my aunt, and he escaped. He was uh, eleven years old. His sister was a year and a half older. His father had already died, and then his mom. It's another incredible story. His mom got out about a year and three quarters later. She was, talk about lucky, was incredibly lucky. It's a complicated story, but she started working for a, a consulate and sort of got diplomatic protection in Hamburg, eventually made it out of Germany by working for another consulate into Switzerland and made it over to the United States in uh, late 1941. So she was very lucky. I'm glad they made it. Yeah, me too. What, what's the best advice they or anyone else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received, Mark Schultz, is? Be persistent, persevere, that, that life does uh, give you some challenges. And the folks that do well are the folks that persist, that keep working at it. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? I think to worry less about each decision, that uh, things are probably going to be okay, that sometimes we have multiple good choices if we're really lucky and obsessing about the perfect choice sometimes means losing the opportunity to enjoy life. Mm, probably pretty good advice for just about every one of our listeners. Maybe. Mark, I don't know, but particularly when I was young, I needed that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all do. It's been <laughs> said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Professor Mark Schultz, best-selling author, how would you like yours to read? So he lived a full and a good life. And he helped some people. My friend, you have lived a good and a full life, and you have helped a few more than some people, and I am now one of them. I thank you for taking the time to uh, visit with me and our listeners. And I thank you for putting forth the effort to live forward your dad's legacy and his family's legacy. And, and now all these Harvard kids and South Side of Boston kids and remind them that their lives matter too. It really has had a profound effect. Well, thank you, John. That means a lot coming from you. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Really interesting conversation. So thank you. My friends, that is Mark Schultz. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Don't miss it and live inspired. 
Well, Mark's insights on happiness are incredible. Yet the piece that I'm taking away, as you guys all know, I'm always looking for one thing, and here's my one thing. It's the advice that he would have given himself at age 20. If you missed it, this is what he said. Sometimes we have multiple good choices, and obsessing over the perfect choice sometimes means losing the opportunity to enjoy the life we have. Woo. My friends, that one is worthy. I'm going to encourage you today to let go of that obsessing over the perfect choices and embrace the grand, miraculous gift in front of you right now. Don't let the drive for perfectionism stunt the opportunity for progress today. If you enjoyed today's episode and are looking for ways to build meaningful connections and friendships in your life, you're going to love my conversation with Dr. I know it's all these doctors lately, Dr. Marissa Franco. Marissa's research reinforces the powerful benefits of platonic relationships, and she shares implementable strategies to build and elevate and savor friendships in every aspect of your life. It's a great conversation. You're going to love it. You're going to love her. Her name again is Marissa Franco, and you'll find her at episode 438 or by just joining me online right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. We'll have a link to Marissa's conversation in the show notes. My friends, if you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor. Let others know that you are tuning in to the uplifting programming here at Live Inspired Podcast with your friend, John O'Leary. Tell them they can do it too. Wherever you work or work out or worship, that they can tune in at any time, anywhere they are. Check it out at johnolearyinspires.com or anywhere they pull down their podcast. My friends, remember this. The foundation is firm. The headwind may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. What a gift, friends. Live inspired. Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely.com.